What is happening, everybody? Welcome to Off the Rails, a recovery podcast dedicated to ending the stigma of addiction through open discussion on all things recovery related. My name is Merrick, and with me always is Dave. Today we got a very special guest. Dave, take it away. Yeah, we're uh, we're super excited to have our uh, our next guest on. We have Mr. Worldwide <laughs> motivational speaker. Uh, he's an author, and uh, he's also the founder of Recovery Army Outreach. So we have the official Recovery Mike on here today. Mike, thanks for Mike. joining us today, man. Thank you guys. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks. You know, it's it's crazy hearing, uh, even to this day, man, it, it, like hearing an introduction like that is something I never would have imagined, uh, you know, over eight years ago, a decade ago, you know, I would have just, I literally would have never, ever imagined. So uh, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. Grateful to get another day. Grateful to wake up with a choice today. Uh, you know, things are good, you know, even on my bad days. So I'm just, I'm super grateful to be here. I appreciate you guys. Awesome, Mike. So Mike, man, as I was kind of explaining before, most times we get our guests to kind of share their story. Uh, myself and Dave will jump in. We'll ask questions and kind of get into a discussion about addiction, about recovery and uh, see where it takes us. All right, man. So, hey, man. so as you mentioned before, you're originally from Philadelphia. What was that like growing up, man? Yeah. So um, Delco, if anyone knows Delco. So I'm down in the States, um, you know, originally from Delco and Philadelphia. Um, you know, it's kind of where where I grew up and uh, spent, you know, most of my time. Um, my, my upbringing was I mean, it was a good upbringing, honestly, you know, like, uh, you know, I had both parents in my life who still are in my life. I had to earn those relationships back, obviously, you know, after some time. Um but, you know, it was I can't point any blame as the, as far as the road I went, you know, with any family, anything like that. Like it was a me problem all along uh, when I got, you know, when I found drugs and alcohol and I found them young, man, like, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old. Um, you know, I, I started with a lot of mental health issues, um, you know, undiagnosed depression, anxiety, you know, these kind of things. And it really wasn't really talked about. Um, you know, I'm 40 now. So, you know, these are my early years, late, late 80s, early 90s, when things started really kind of mentally kind of taking off, um, you know, with the mental health issues. And, uh, you know, I really never opened up about it. I really didn't talk to anybody about it. I didn't see resources. I really thought I was unique in the way where something's wrong with me, you know, and didn't really realize that there was millions of others that were suffering just as I did. Um, you know, and then I just kind of found at that young age, you know, the crowd I hung out with, like I, I got kicked out of school in ninth grade in high school uh, for having possession with the, with the intent. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of where it started off. So like a lot of people can probably relate with the fact like high school years and stuff going out on the weekends and drinking in the woods and doing all these kind of things and like to have fun. Like it was never fun for me. You know, I like, I, you know, I suffered with addiction and alcoholism for over 20 years of my life. Uh, and I can't recall one time when it was actually fun. Um, you know, for me, it was a pure escape, you know, from day one. Like when I found weed and alcohol and 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 and, and pills and like whatever I could put in me um, from day one, that became my solution. You know, and it's like the more I took to kind of bury the way that I was feeling or just to fit in or feel like I was a part of or get that liquid courage or whatever it may have been, uh, you know, eventually just stopped working. And it became such a dependency at that point um, that my choices were kind of gone, you know, and it was just I was autopilot for quite some time after. 
man, I, uh, I really relate to like, um, you know, like referring to it as an escape. And I found for like my mental health, it was almost like, I remember the first time I did like Coke, I, uh, like, it was almost like instant. I was like, man, this, this is the answer to it. Right. And it was like, it was so, it obviously wasn't, but, uh, I don't know, man. I, I relate to that a lot. You said you didn't talk about it too much with the family. Did you find out later on that there's any family history with, uh, alcoholism or anything or yeah so crazy and that's a good question you know crazy enough um i have looked back so there's some mental health components you know like in in my family tree but as far as like addiction alcoholism like i'm like a black sheep man like um i didn't have this generational curse that was handed down through the generations you know um I kind of feel like I started it in my family, you know, and uh, which kind of made me feel even more like the black sheep because I couldn't see anyone. This didn't come genetically from anybody else. I felt like, you know, so um, yeah. So as far back as I can see, that really wasn't there. You know, the mental health aspect and stuff was too. Um, but then again, like I also grew up in a, a pretty enabling household though. Also, um, you know, I was the house where you could go, you know, as we were teenagers and we can, we can drink, just leave your car keys with my family and make sure you're not driving home where, you know, it's okay to, you know, they knew I was smoking weed, stuff like that in my room and doing these other things. But like, the thing was, they, they knew 10% of what was actually happening behind closed doors. You know what I mean? Like, that's just like on the front I put up, just having some drinks, smoking a little bit, like that was it. And like, but behind closed doors was a whole different story, you know? And, uh, but yeah, as far back as I can see, it wasn't there. So like, I, yeah, I felt like, you know, that put me in an even more uncomfortable situation to even open up about it simply because I felt like no one would be able to relate to it. If I open up about how I truly feel, I mean, being suicidal, I attempted suicide more than multiple times, um, you know, even from a, a young teen age, um, I felt like if I, because I did actually like bring it up once or twice and I was put inpatient, you know, I was 302. That's what they call it. You know, I was, I was put in involuntary into a, a psych unit. And like, so I know that kind of like sheltered me from not opening up also to family and people that were close to me, because I'm like, well, if I tell them how I really feel, they're just going to put me in an institution, you know? And of course that's not what I wanted, you know, did I need it? Yeah. You know, but like, did I want to do it? Absolutely not. Mike, you mentioned um, like in grade nine, you got kicked out of school. Uh, what kind of happened from there? So, yeah. So freshman year um, had uh, prescription medication, um, dose selling. And uh, so I kind of had the option. So it was either I get expelled from school, um, transfer schools. Uh, luckily for me, my mother actually worked for the school district. Not luckily for her. It was not a good look for her. That must I'll tell you. So, um, you know, and it was like, man, I feel like a, a whole piece of shit too, excuse my language, but like, I felt pretty shitty. Right. Um, but you know, luckily for me, <clears throat> I was able to get homeschooled. Um, and that's what I did, but it really goes to show you, like, I was super antisocial, hated being around people, no matter what the environment, especially my peers, like school, all, no matter what it was. So I was, I did terribly, you know, F's and D's barely passing, you know, these things. And, um, you know, so my work would kind of be left for me. My mom and dad both worked, they were out of the household, um, and they'd leave the work behind for me that they would be doing in the same grade that I would have been in. And uh, you know, I just kind of did it on my own. So like, it took me an hour or two out of my day uh, and just kind of taught myself everything. There was no tutors, no nothing like that. Um, and, and, and ended up graduating. I got my diploma from high school um, and with pretty much A's and B's. Um, so like, you know, that's kind of, it's, it's, it was kind of a blessing in disguise. 
you know, like I needed it to, to at least graduate high school. Cause I definitely would have, if I stayed. Um, so, you know, looking back, it's like, I'm glad it happened, uh, which is, you know, most of the, most of the things, most of the bad times in my life. And I gotta be grateful for them. You know, like I'm grateful. That's when I, you know, I, I tend to learn my biggest lessons in the, in the most severe moments of pain and distress and trials and tribulations, like those things that we go through, um, which life is going to throw at us no matter what. Um, you know, luckily I can find that silver lining now, um, even going into a negative situation and find a positive outcome, you know, kind of change my mindset. So what was your social scene then, I guess, high school years before you kind of got a little older, if, uh, the who would you end up hanging out with and what kind of circles you find yourself in? So usually, so early on when I was young, I played sports, I was great at sports, uh, heavily involved, you know, until a certain age when I hit like that 13 thing, you know, and then it was just, uh, you know, neighborhood kids that, you know, did stuff on the weekends and stuff like that. And now, like when I look back at the people I associated with then, you know, even close friends, honestly, most of them are dead. Um, there's a lot that are in prison. Uh, and you know, some are still out there and, and running and doing things. Um, I can probably, and then some never had a problem, you know, like some never had the ism, some never had the, the true addiction or alcoholism component with things or, you know, severe mental health or anything like that. And we're able to do that, you know, successfully, you know, so to speak. So, um, you know, that's why I kind of gravitated towards was who would best, suit my needs you know right like it's it was a selfish lifestyle that I lived and it was very self-seeking so like if you have something to offer me that's who I'm going to be around you know my solution was to escape myself with any kind of substance or alcohol I could so if you had that that's where I'm going you know so Mike during that time you're being homeschooled you're still, you're still kind of on the weekends using and whatnot yeah and by this time it was all day every day the okay. weekends are weekends are gone now, um, you know, 14, 15, full blown alcoholic. Uh, you know, I'm in my family's home, I, in my bedroom. I have a half gallon of vodka under my couch at all times, uh, you know, from the minute I get up, um, you know, and I started getting served at the local liquor stores when I was like 16, 17 years old uh, without ID and stuff. So it was like easy, very easy for me to obtain what I needed. Um, and it started that young, just with the isolation, drinking on my own, you know, doing drugs, things like that. Anything I'd have to leave the house to go do, I had to do these things prior to leaving the house. You know, I just felt like I couldn't even, like, I mean, there came a point when I was nearly diagnosed agoraphobic where I wouldn't even leave the house. Uh, and that was because I didn't have anything in me. Yeah. So after high school, were you still, still at home? Yeah. So after that, uh, so I ended up moving out probably 19 or so, uh, got an apartment, and, uh, you know, this time I'm, I'm selling drugs by now. Um, you know, that's kind of how things are getting funded. Um, you know, rent, car, you know, all these things. And, and I, I, meet the, I meet a female. And this is one thing, one of the one things that propelled my use for sure. Um, you know, among, a, you know, losing my grandmother, my great grandmother, as I was young, um, who ended up being put on hospice in my home, um, who were really, really, truly there for me uh, and played a huge part in raising me and losing them and um, not knowing how to deal with that and, uh, you know, properly grieve that. Uh, definitely propelled things a lot too. Um, but so I, I meet this female and I move her in, you know, I, I'm a very impulsive person even today, you know, it's like I always fight these impulses and, uh, you know, back then it was like, whatever, you know, whatever I want to do is, is, is what I did. So, you know, I had this female move in 
within, you know, a couple months of meeting, um, gets pregnant. Now, by this time, I'm already already had a couple failed suicide attempts. I'm like 20 years old, probably about to turn 21. Uh, and, you know, she tells me one day that she's pregnant. And so for me, it was like the state, the mind, the, the state of mind I was in at that point was like, all right, so this is kind of a, a blessing and a curse. Like my mind's going crazy now. Like, all right, am I going to be able to provide, am I going to be able to stop using and drinking and to be there for this child? Um, you know, and like, am I ready for this? But at the same time, it was like, this might be exactly what I need to get my stuff together and get on a right track because I finally have something to live for right like I felt like there was truly nothing to live for like I I didn't care whether I woke up the next day or not on any given day for a couple of decades and uh so the baby was born uh it was my first son and you know about eight months into the relationship or so after the child was born um I get a phone call from her mother and she was like um you know I don't know if you remember this time when she was supposed to be there and wasn't um, but, you know, long story short, there's a chance that he might not be yours. And it just devastated me, right? Just hearing this news. So I kind of call her out on it, get a DNA test and, uh, you know, wait 48 hours for the results. Um, at this point, it's the longest 48 hours of my life. Uh, I literally felt like my life was dependent on the outcome of that test. Like, I'm like, either this is going to be my child and I'm going to try to get my shit together or it's not. And I'm going to swallow a bullet. Like it's that simple. I felt like there was that was the only ways to go. One, one or two, that was it. And um, <clears throat> so I'm calling and calling and calling. You know, every hour I'm calling this place, seeing if they get the results early. Like literally waited to like a 49th hour to finally tell me. And uh, and they said like, look, I'm sorry to tell you, there's a 99.9 percent chance that he's not yours. And uh, I just dropped the phone. I remember just dropping the phone, my hand, my head in my hands, and uh, and just cried, man and just, and just lost it. Um, and like that truly propelled, uh, and fueled my fire to, you know, continue to, to just exercise my will and do things that I want to do, not worrying about any kind of consequences, not worrying about, you know, what it may cost me in the long run and, or even temporarily, if it cost me my life, like I did not care, um, followed by another failed suicide attempt. And, uh, that's when things kind of, you know, escalated. And, and, and really started taking off there. Was that it for the, I don't want to make assumptions, was that it for that relationship and, and uh, with the son as well? So it, it, so it was, um, you know, this was, so she did finally discuss, you know, who it could potentially could be. They got a test done and it was, that was the case. It was this other individual. And uh, so like for that first year, like I stopped by on like a birthday and Christmas and dropped some gifts off on the front porch and kind of like, but it was hard, man. And um, you know, I really couldn't, like, I just couldn't face her, you know, like I just couldn't, I I couldn't do it. And I was already like so far gone. So um, that, so that, you know, I just slowly kind of stepped away um and let the biological father kind of step in and 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 do his thing and you know I really don't know today you know how that situation really is but yeah I had to kind of excuse myself for sure you know and I felt terrible about it um but you know yeah it was tough it was tough so so from there Mike man what uh I think that is just like I don't like you prepare for things in recovery Right. But I don't know how you, I don't know. That one's tough. So from there, but how did you, uh, where'd you go from there? Yeah. So, 
So from yeah, <laughs> I went down some dark. Some, I, I got dark yeah. after that. I'll tell you that. Um, so yeah, from there, man, I um, so you know, I'm working this sales job. Most of my background at the point was like sales and marketing. If I was working, um, or at least making some money on the books because I'm making money otherwise anyway. I got to kind of show you know that whole thing. So, <clears throat> and this is back when like oxycontin was prevalent and stuff like that. So like that was a main source of income for me. Um, you know, and, uh, it wasn't the wisest thing to do. And, but, you know, that's just the lifestyle that I, that I unfortunately lived, but, uh, no, so it, it, it ended up getting pretty dark. So, you know, I, I, at a job, I meet another female, which was always a big struggle for me too, right? It was like codependency and filling a void with females and whatever it is, anything to like not focus on myself, not have to look in the mirror, you know, worry about other people's stuff and not really have to take a look at myself. You know, I was all about it. Um, so I did the same thing impulsively moved into my apartment within a couple months, literally almost like the same timeline happened. And here comes, here it comes. She's like, I'm pregnant. I'm like, oh, fuck. Right. Like it's, I just, I guess a flashback first. I get like this flashback, like, all right, I'm going, I'm, I'm dead. Like I'm going to die. Like, you know what I mean? Like worst case scenarios are playing out. And, uh, you know, so, and I told her, I said, look, it has nothing to do with you. Given my previous experience, which I have told you about before, I have to get a test done because I, I, I just, I like, I need to know. And we did. And uh, another long 48 hours, right? Even longer this time, waiting for the results. And they came back and uh, and he was my son. So that's my firstborn biological son that was born uh, in 2005. Uh, his name is Michael and he is amazing. He'll, he's a he's a senior in high school now, um, only has a, a few classes, you know, a week to do. He's a he's an honor roll student um just really just a smart smart super smart kid um young man i should say and uh so i ended up having see that relationship though was extremely toxic as well so it was more of running partners than it was domestic partners and things like that so it was like nine years i was with this woman and um had another child and that's my younger son he's 14 his name's julian um and uh you know, and both of them are my life today, which is amazing because I ended up losing a lot of time and a lot of years with them, um, which, you know, which was the hardest part. One of the hardest things for me to get over was a shame and guilt that I still carry uh, for the time that I've missed. And uh, so, like I said, it was it got super toxic. And there comes a time when, like when you live a certain lifestyle and, and you know, whether it's selling drugs, these kind of things like things run out. Right. Like they run out, things dry up. You can't get what you need to make money sometimes. And that's exactly what happened with me. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'm living in Northeast Philadelphia and um, <clears throat> lose the house. You know, uh, you know, I get I get evicted from the house, lose my car, um, you know, and at this point, like that was back when, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm buying new cars off the lot every single year because I get bored with them. I'm going shopping for clothes, jewelry, like all this dumb shit that I really didn't need, all this tangible things that I thought would make me feel better. And it was like that outside from the outside looking in, like if I can look like I'm doing OK, you know, I could probably fool some people to thinking that I'm doing all right inside. I'm absolutely broken. Right. Like I'm, I'm truly broken emotionally, physically, spiritually, like you name it. I'm just completely bankrupt. And, um, you know, so I lost all that stuff. And then we moved down into uh, Frankfurt, Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, it's not a great place, man. Like, it's, it's not a good place. And, um, you know, I came a point where she kind of went her way. I kind of went mine. Her mother luckily looked after our children. Um, and that's kind of like when I made this, like, um, this selfish yet selfless decision of like, 
okay, we need somebody to watch the children because where we were staying and, and getting a room at for temporarily uh, was the middle of the winter. You know, it was snowing out. I think it was like December or something of, the, of that one year. And, uh, you know, there's snow on the ground, you know, it's, it's 10 degrees out. Uh, and I'm in a house with no heat. It just had electricity and cold running water. That was it. It's pretty much an abandoned house just with electricity and, uh, no heat, you know, no nothing. So, um, you know, after like two days of that, I was, my kids can't stay here. Like they just, I can't, I can't put them through this. It's like, this is our situation. We put ourselves in this, but they don't deserve it. And, uh, you know, it was one of the best decisions, but hardest decisions I ever made. Um, was to let somebody, you know, was kind of let go uh, and, and, and hopefully try to get our stuff together. And that was like the kind of the point where we were, that's what the goal was to get our shit together. Um, you know, unfortunately it didn't go that way. You know, like the obsession was so deep rooted at this point. Um, and, and just, you know, the desire of the other things that I, that I really wanted and felt that I needed uh, was stronger at that time, you know, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, that's why we always say like, you got to do it for yourself. You know, like my kids won't keep me clean. My kids won't keep me sober, you know, like, are they motivating factors? 100%. Um, but it's up, it's completely up to me and what I do internally to keep what I have uh, and to be able to give it away and give it back to people. Uh, so <clears throat> now I'm homeless out on the streets. Like I'm chasing everything and everything. I'm down in Kensington, Philadelphia. Not sure if you guys ever heard of the place. If you haven't, uh, and anyone that's listening, uh, YouTube it, Kensington, Philadelphia, and you'll see some things that don't even do it justice. Um, if you're there in person, it's completely different, but it is literally like a third world country getting worse and worse and worse. It's, the, it's probably the biggest open drug market in the U.S., if not the world. You know, there's, there's, you know, and it's all fentanyl now and everything on every single corner. Cops drive by, don't even turn their head. There's people shooting up in their neck right on the sidewalk as cops drive by. Like, no one cares. Like, it's just like a forgotten place. They kind of treat it how they did, like, Skid Row back in the day and just kind of isolated everything. So, like, all this stuff's happening down here, and I feel like they're letting – people get away with what they want to do down there. So they don't start moving and branching off into other parts of the city. They're like, just trying to contain it at this point, they'll find one of the biggest spots where there's, you know, 40, 50 homeless people out there and using and doing whatever. And they'll come up and just drop a dumpster in the street right there for them. Just so it's not as, 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 as dirty and everything like that. And uh, you know, it's like, it's sad, like it's truly sad. So I spent the next seven years of my life homeless down there, you know, every summer, every winter, Every code blue they called went through every shelter there was, um, you know, in the surrounding Philadelphia area and everything in Philadelphia multiple times. Uh, thought I finally came to a level of acceptance that all right, I do need some help. I got to stop doing some of the things I'm doing. Uh, tried to get into a suboxone clinic. Uh, and that's what I did. I did an IOP program. And, you know, anytime I talk about maintenance, look, if it works for you, it works. If you're alive today and it's helping you where it has helped you, God bless, like more power to you. Keep doing whatever it takes to stay alive at this point, because we lost way too many people, um, especially as this last you know year or two. Um, for me, it just personally didn't work uh, just because I kind of expected it to be some kind of miracle drug. Like I could take something uh, and, that, and that's it, you know, but it's like that same behavior, the same mentality. And I'm putting something in myself um, and I'm not doing any work that I should have done along with it to kind of correct, you know, notice the wrongs I've done, you know, why did I do them? Why did I start? Like why all these things happen and, uh, and what I'm going to do about it moving forward. Uh, so nothing changed, right? Like nothing changed. Now I'm just taking these and I'm taking just enough. So I'm not sick anymore and I'm selling the rest. I'm so like, I can't let go of these old behaviors at this point. Like they're going nowhere. So everywhere I go, even to the clinics and I, 
you know, I did that for two years. I was on this clinic, come in for a random pill count. They called me for one day and, uh, you know, I didn't even have a phone, so they couldn't get a hold on me. So I didn't even know they tried to reach out to me. And I go in the next day and they said, you missed your pill count. You missed, um, you know, you missed it. So you're kicked off the program. And uh, that was after two, two years on that. I got kicked off of there within the next few days. I got locked up on the street um, on a violation on my uh, probation and parole and uh, ended up kicking that in jail for a while. Um, you know, and while I was there, I still didn't take advantage of H&I meetings and people from fellowships to come in and do groups and stuff like that. Like I just lived the jail mentality when I was in there. Um, got my weight up a little bit, like, and, you know, I was 130 pounds soaking wet running out there, you know, like I was eating, you know, a pint of white rice from the Chinese store and some crispy noodles with a soy sauce and a duck sauce once every other day. Like that was it. Just like enough carbs just to keep me going um, was pretty much it. And it's like, so I got, got my weight up, felt a little bit better. And I came out, went right back to a, right back on a run, you know? And it was like, it was continuously that for like those seven years, it was like seven years of homelessness plus same, nearly the same amount of time incarcerated psych units, rehabs, like you name it. Um, you know, pretty much, pretty much everything, you know, and, uh, I decided to finally went into treatment inpatient. They got me on methadone maintenance. I did that for five years. Um, but that same thing, I went in and I'm a master manipulator. I go in, I manipulate the doctor and I'm like, they start me on 30 milligrams. And I, 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 genuinely like feel okay i'm not even sick anymore like dope sick from from the heroin withdrawal and everything like that and um but like i don't have a sense of euphoria so that's not that's not enough for me right like i didn't want to just feel okay i wanted to feel better plus some you know like i wanted a sense of euphoria so i would check in with a doctor like every other day like doc it's not holding me i need more i need more i need more just like everything in my life right and uh you know and that's what he did you know he gave me more and more and i left there 30 days later on 130 milligrams of methadone um, you know, it's, it's clearly getting me high at this point, like, and, um, <clears throat> get discharged to a methadone maintenance program, meet another female, of course. Um, you know, and she's like, oh, you can move in with me when we get out. I'm like, yeah, sounds great. You know, I, I go there, go to the house and come to find out, you know, she's already pulled all the piping out of her house and scrapped it all and everything. And I go there and it's, I'm pretty much back in the same situation again. Uh, and now I'm dependent on this method. I'm not working the program. I'm standing outside of the clinic, you know, before and after and selling other stuff to help intensify people medication and stuff like that. Like it's that whole lifestyle. I couldn't let go of the drama and, you know, like all that stuff and, and couldn't let it go. Uh, so like, no wonder why I wasn't successful, you know, at doing that when I could have been, you know what I mean? I just never took any actual suggestions or guidance from the people I should have listened to. I thought I could do it my way and, you know, my way just doesn't work. And, um, so, you know, I did that for five years and finally I'm like, I really got fed up with that lifestyle living on that clinic and everything. I'm like, I got to get off. I talked to the doctor. I asked him if he can take me down, detox me off the medication. And he tells me, uh, yeah, I can take you down like two to four milligrams a week. I'm on 130 milligrams. I'm like, that's going to take forever. Like, I don't, I, I just don't have, I don't have the time for that. So of course I do it my way. I just walk off the program. I just leave and uh, don't come back. And uh, that was brutal. You know, five years of every single day taking 130 milligrams of methadone was a bad detox, man. And, uh, you know, I stayed in someone else's uh, basement during that time. <clears throat> I lasted about a week. Um, you know, not using their drug of choice who I stayed with was meth at the time. And, uh, you know, I have this, you know, my disease is talking to me over here, you know, saying, well, why don't you, you know, you feel like shit physically, 
you know, you're completely exhausted. Like everything hurts right now. Like my hair hurt when I had it. And, uh, you know, and it was like, why don't you just do a little bit of that? Like, and so of course I listened. Right. And that's what I did. Like for the moment it helped. And then when I'm up five days later, still and come down, I'm like, holy shit, this is not good. <laughs> I'm like, this ain't good. I got to go back away. And so I did this. I went into another treatment that 28 days there completed. I'm messing with females. I'm not paying attention to groups. I'm not sharing. I'm not talking, being open and honest and vulnerable with my therapist. I'm not taking advantage of the program. It was just a place to live really. Like I just, it never clicked for me, you know? And it's like, I did 28 days there, felt like shit the entire time coming off of that and went and did 45 days and completed another program directly from there was still hurting when I left there. And, um, you know, it wasn't long after that. I ended up getting locked up again. Um, you know, I was wanted in five different counties in southeastern PA. And, uh, you know, I got stopped one time and they uh, they found my ID, which I usually kept hidden. Did a thorough search, found my ID, saw that I was wanted in like five different counties. Uh, and that was the next few years of my life was just bouncing around from every jail that wanted me, trying to give me all the back time that I owed them, you know, public defenders and, you know, that whole thing. So it was like, that was the next few years. And then I finally, now that was the most time I had my entire life. Um, Cause I really, I didn't even use when I was in jail, um, you know, that time. And uh, <clears throat> so it was the most time I had, but I never did anything to change anything. So I was still the same asshole. Like I'm still the same asshole that I've always been at that point. And uh, I, you know, I'm just dry. Like I haven't used. So I get out, I get discharged to a, a, a recovery house back in my stomping grounds in, in Frankfurt. And um you know, it didn't take long before, um, you know, before I picked up again and started drinking, you know, uh, you know, the one thing I did find, though, that actually helped uh, that kind of opened my perspective and kind of changed my mindset towards things was service work, uh, which is one of the first times I've actually done something not for myself when I did something for others and not expect anything back. Like when I got there, I just got out of jail. No one's eating. We're supposed to have three meals a day and this and that. And um, as soon as I walk into the place, the house manager smoking crack. So I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. Good start. And uh, so, you know, I'm like, well, why is no one eating and this and that? And, you know, there's an excuse for everything. And I broke in the kitchen one day and uh, went in the freezer and found a bunch of meat. And I'm like, why the fuck are we not eating? So I decided to just take it upon myself and just start cooking meals. Like if you ain't going to do it, so it's here. Someone's got to fucking do it. Right. So I just started cooking meals, like three meals a day for all the guys in the house. And like that actually gave me a sense of purpose, like a sense of being dependable, you know, like guys can wake up in the morning and come down and know it's not what it used to be. Like, we're going to get a, you know, a hot breakfast this morning. Like it, it actually meant something. I mean, it felt good. Like, and that was the very beginning of like a, a, a long transition, you know, like getting that piece of things. And, um, I ended up being a manager of the house. Uh, and then once I did that, though, I kind of started getting too involved with everybody else, what they need to do and get to meetings and this and that. And uh, <clears throat> and, you know, it didn't take long before I'm sending them out to a meeting. And while they're there, I'm upstairs drinking as many four logos as I can, you know, before they come back from the meeting. And uh, I mean, I hit it pretty well for once in my life, I think so, surprisingly. And, uh, you know, so I stepped down to a step down house. And the first week in that house, I can't pay the rent and I get kicked out <laughs> and I'm right back on the street. <clears throat> so then I'm back homeless on the street uh, and <clears throat> get back into the same lifestyle I was living, um, you know, reconnect with some people from from, you know, previous years. 
and uh, started selling some substances, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, this is kind of when my turning point came uh, back in 2014. And, um, you know, I had to collect I was collecting money from someone that owed me some money. It's twenty dollars that day. And uh, I get into a physical altercation with this person. You know, I think I have the upper hand. I start walking away. Little did I know uh, the guy walks back into his house and comes back out with a hammer and comes up from behind me and cracks me on the side of the head with a hammer. Um, you know, it shatters my cranium. Um, I wake up, you know, I'm bleeding out, laying in the street for a few hours before an ambulance gets to me. Mind you, I'm two, two blocks from a hospital, but they don't have a trauma center. And, uh, so they send me over to another one, rush me into brain surgery. Um, you know, they had to pick pieces of my skull out of my brain. Um, they removed part of my left side of my brain, uh, and then put a titanium plate here and closed it with 30 staples. So you can probably see the you might be able to see the scar. It's oh, yeah. so it a horseshoe incision there. Um, I wear it proudly, though, man, I do. I just have a hat on today. I normally don't. Um, but I wear it proudly, man, because that was truly the most painful, excruciating thing that I've ever had to go through for that whole next year, at least. Um, and uh, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me, man. I woke up in the ICU room as John Doe. I didn't know who the fuck I was. Um, you know, I look down, I have IVs hanging out of me, all this crazy cords and stuff like I'm looking around. I'm thinking this is a dream when I woke up I, like or a nightmare, I should say scan the room and I see, you know, I see the whiteboard up here and has like the nurse's name and everything like that, that you'd see patient name, John Doe. I'm like, who the fuck is that? Right. So I look at, uh, seriously, I look in the mirror. I'm like, who's this fucking guy? Like <laughs> half my head shaved, you know, the horseshoe incision with 30 staples closing it. Like, and I don't even know who I'm looking at. Like, I'm just thinking this is an absolute nightmare. This can't be real. Um, anxiety kicks in and I just went back out. Like, and then I finally came to again, and that's when I had, like, I truly had a spiritual awakening in this hospital. Um, you know, like, I've lost everything material-wise multiple times in my life. And not just that, the relationships with my children, with my family for, like, a decade, uh, speaking to absolutely nobody. Anytime I was incarcerated or psych unit, like, rehabs, anything like that, there was no letters, no commissary, no phone calls. There was absolutely no support. Even when I was there left for dead on the street. No one was there. No one was there. No one gave a shit. No one was there to save me. You know what I mean? It just, it, they weren't there. These fair weather friends and all this stuff, like just weren't there. Um, and, uh, you know, that's when things really changed. Though, like I said, so like, I'll never, it gives me goosebumps talking about it. Um, when I'm in that hospital bed, so I can't, at this point, I can't walk, talk or write. So I'm literally like a vegetable in this damn hospital bed. And I don't even know who I am or how I got there. And, all I could remember was scripture was the only thing that I could remember. Um, I, like I was raised in a Christian household, but when I say that it was more religion than like we went to, you know, we went to church on Sundays and kind of left it there. Um, this was the day and the time when it became spirituality to me. And I, I saw what the difference was. Um, it was literally like a third person was reading to me Bible verses uh, and the biggest, like audibly, like I'm, I think I'm schizophrenic at this point or something like, I don't even know what's going on. Um, but I listened, like I listened and it made sense because like the biggest thing that stuck out was the verse was constantly repeated to me was forgive them for they know not what they do. And I didn't know at that point of why I even was there until they finally came and told me someone tried to kill you. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like, and it's all about, and it was all about forgiveness it was everything I just kept hearing. And, uh, and that's what I did. Like I, I listened to it. Not only like, you know, I know the person. I finally came to remember who the person was and everything. 
I didn't forgive that person face to face, but I did internally with myself. And just because I'm not going to let it control me, you know, anymore and, and have any power over me. So like I had to do that and, you know, I'm sick and that person was sick as well. Um, you know, and I put myself directly in those situations. Like there's no one to blame, but myself for doing that. And, uh, you know, that was a point when I finally started taking accountability for my actions, um, and seeing that I'm the person with the fucking problem, like all this hell that's, that's been in my life, all these problems I've been through, like I put myself through all of it, you know, and there was so many outs, like God was there the whole time with so many outs when I look back and I never took any of them. Right. Like until this point. And then finally I'm like, all right, this starts to make sense. So I held on to that. Like I couldn't talk to the nurses or the doctor or anything. That was my only line of communication. This person talking to me and I know it was my creator at this point. Like I, I knew that much. And that was the only line of communication I had. So I kept it open. I listened and I talked, um, you know, just, you know, through my head, through prayer. Um, and it made all the difference, man. Like, like I said, I, I've lost all this material stuff time and time again. And family, I lost myself. Um, so this really didn't start just my recovery process. It was my discovery process. You know, it was that whole first year was relearning how to walk, talk, write, physical therapy, speech therapy, vocational therapy, all these things. And, uh, you know, it was extremely painful to finally get to where I needed to be. And uh, I, I'm, I'm just beyond grateful to be there now. Um, and then, you know, years later, finally earned the relationships back with my family. You know, I haven't picked up since. So, like, I finally earned a relationship back with my family. You know, my kids are in my life. Um, you know, I ended up having another child also, which is a crazy story, uh, <laughs> which I don't mind getting into if we had time. But, yeah, um, but like, that was my turning point, though, man. And, and that's when things truly, truly changed for me. I knew that there was more out there for me. Um, you know, after a year of even all this intense therapy and stuff, mentally, I still really didn't feel like I was where I needed to be. So I checked myself into a psych unit. And, um, you know, because I, I wanted the help this time, I really wanted it and wanted to get better and wanted to do better. I knew there was a calling for me, right? Like I knew it. And um, I was there for three months, usually you're there for like 14 days or so. My insurance cut me off after 14 days. They scholarship me because they don't know what to do with me. And um, after three months, they finally come to me. They test me three different times cognitively and told me that I'm mentally handicapped all three different times. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't accept that, though. Like I knew I was making progress. Um, you know, they just didn't see it. And uh, they told me, you know, our only suggestion is for you to live the rest of your life in a traumatic brain institute. Uh, and I absolutely refused. You know, I discharged and uh, moved into a person that was in uh, one of the 12 step fellowship, um, you know, who I, who I got a chance to meet, who was a complete stranger at that point uh, and really saved my life, man, and changed the direction of my life and allowed me to stay in his home and really start my recovery process, uh, which really just goes to show you how deep some of these fellowships go uh, and how truly caring these people are and, 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 and the length that they'll go to help anybody, um, which was a game changer for me again. Uh, you know, and that kind of changed my whole perspective on, on, on really everything. Like I felt like losing all these things and, and, and myself and, you know, the tangible and non-tangible things so many times, like, I feel like it was finally like, you know, God was telling me like, this is my, like there's stabbings along the way. There's um, I was put in a nursing home at like 26 years old in a wheelchair, couldn't walk, like a lot of crazy shit along the way. And it was like, finally, I think God was just like, look, I got to take everything from you now. Like, your ability to talk, like your ability to walk, you know what I mean? You can't even, you can't speak or write. Like I need to take you all these things away from you. So you do it all differently. And like, that's what made the difference for me is like that time around when all these things are going, I got to rewire my brain 
and do thing, do everything completely different and just do a complete 180. So everything I did do, you know, before, prior to that, I tried to do almost the exact opposite, uh, you know, coming out of the darkness. And, uh, and that's where I found the light, man. That's why I truly did, man. And now like, I'm, I'm super grateful to be able to, to be in a position on that. Um, you know, they told me I, I, I'd never speak and I'm a professional speaker. Now I get to travel and speak. Um, you know, they told me I wouldn't probably write again. Uh, I became a published author uh, and poet, uh, which I never thought ever would have. I used to hate writing, like none of that stuff, man. Now it's like my go-to, right? Like it's crazy. Um, so like, I, I love proving people wrong now. Like I love it. Like they call me, that's why I wouldn't walk and I'm walking my dreams. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I love it. Like, tell me I can't do something. I'll do it twice and I'll send you a picture. You know, like, that's kind of like my mindset. Like it kind of fuels me. It keeps me motivated. I don't always stay motivated. I just know like when I needed to change my life, I had absolutely zero to lose, nothing to lose, but to give it a shot. Right. Like I really couldn't have failed, um, you know, as long as I tried and that's what I did. And I just continuously try to do that on a daily basis, man, and just improve my life, improve my family lives and people that are surround me and people in my community. Mike, man, you mentioned you moved in with, uh, you know, someone from a 12 step group. Did you ever uh, attend any groups yourself? Yeah. So, um, I've been through the 12 steps in AA, um, which I still live by principles, um, you know, and live through 10, 11 and 12. Um, I've also fellowship with NA as well. Um, I appreciate celebrate too. Um, like for me, I feel like, you know, a majority of stems from the same thing. Uh, but at the end of the day, if there's that many resources out there, like I'm going to use it, whatever I can, Absolutely. you know, and it's not always that either, you know, I'm very faith-based, um, you know, my, my, you know, God sustains my recovery first and foremost. Like I always have to put him first, no matter what, um, in front of myself, in front of my family, everyone, uh, like I owe him everything, um, you know, I can't even express in words just the, the gratitude that I have. Um, and as long as I'm putting it first, then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing OK. But, yeah, I mean, all different avenues for me, you know, like I'm not this is my this is my path. Like, it, it, look, if I can if it brings value to my life and my recovery and me being a man and a father and, a you know, soon to be husband and and all these things, then I'm taking advantage of everything I possibly can, you know, because that's really what I'm all about is just encouraging growth, self-improvement. Uh, and just continuously trying to be better than I was yesterday. Uh, I think it's, I just think it's super cool. You got that uh, lucky horseshoe on your head there to remind you. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I shave my head too. And like, sometimes it's rough though, because like, so I shave my head. I'm not totally bald. So I, I by choice, uh, when COVID hit in 2020 in the barber shops and everything closed down, like I was just shaving and I ain't got time for this. So now I got the best barber ever. He's on demand. Whenever I need done, he's there for me. You know, it's free of charge, no tip. And, uh, but I gotta be careful, man. Cause like even nerves and shit are still messed up there. So it's like, it feels crazy. A lot of times you got to go over a certain ways of a razor. I cut myself all the time. Cause it's, it's like pretty indented and not long ago, actually just a couple months ago, within a couple days time frame, the mind is like eight years ago when this happened out of nowhere, the top part of my head right here actually caved in a little bit. Um, and it was like out of nowhere. And like the pain was crazy and the pressure and all this. I'm like, something's going on. So I had to go to the hospital and go get scans done and everything like that. Luckily, it didn't turn out to be anything uh, serious and they're not going to go back in there unless it's life threatening. Um, but now it's like uh, migraines are back and like trying to deal with these things and stuff. But, you know, like I, it's like I look back in my life and all, it's just full of so much fucking pain and like 
but it's so full of comebacks and like perseverance and resilience and grit. Like, you know, being able to look back at like, damn, I went through all that. Like, so when life throws the challenges at me now, like, I feel like I can handle anything, you know, like, and I, I'm far from invincible. Believe me, I'm one bad decision away of being right where I was. There's no question about it, but I'm that much more confident in being able to handle a situation without putting a drink in me or like whatever it may be. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, life shows up, man, it sucker punches us in the face time and time again. I don't care whether you're clean and sober or not, like it's going to happen. Like I got sober, not perfect. You know what I mean? My life is far from fucking perfect. Believe me when I tell you, but it's manageable. And I got the right people in my life now who show support when I need assistance, they're there to help out. And, and, and likewise with them. And it's like, Now I know like when life comes, the sucker punches me, man, knocks me on that pavement again. Like I always remind myself that pavement is not made of fucking rubber. Like that pavement is not a trampoline. Like I'm not just going to bounce back up. Like it's going to take like I have to look at myself and my situation and things I've been through before and stuff and, and, and realize like no, I have to get up. Like I have to get up, like get up onto my knees and get up back to, onto my feet to keep going. But the beauty of having the people in your life that are encouraging uh, and really inspire you to do better and are all, and are genuinely there for you and care and love for you. It's like, it's not how it used to be where I'd get knocked out literally and just like come to and have to just crawl myself back up and, you know, with no one to, to lean on or anything. And it's now it's like, I get knocked down on my ass and I look up and there's a hand there. You know what I mean? There's a hand there to help boost me and pull me back up. And it's like, that's the difference, man. And, uh, and it's just, that's just the beauty of recovery and, and people that, that, that truly genuinely care, man. And uh, to have those people in your life, like I always, and even now, like I I just have to keep a close eye and analyze my circle all the time. Like attitudes, behaviors, they're all so super contagious, man. Um, You know, you hear the saying, like you hang out with four millionaires, you'll be the fifth. You hang out with, you know, four, you know, just stupid people, you're going to be the fifth. Like, you know, it's just, you are who you surround yourself with. Like, and I constantly have to analyze that. And like people that are doing way more than me and just encouraging me to do so and 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 to be better, because um, if not, like I'm not in it's, it's not my circle anymore. It's a cage. And like I've been in this mental prison, in this cage for so long in my life. Like I, I can't go back to that. You know, so it's just a constant evaluation of my life, who I'm around with, what I'm doing with my intentions. Are they pure? It's this constantly analyzation, a self-analyzation of, of just, you know, continuously trying to better myself and help other people. You know, that's what's key for me. I wanted to circle back on um, just on that forgiveness you talked about with, you know, I think that's pretty incredible. I mean, we've talked about it before with forgiveness, but someone trying to literally take your life. Um, where did that, when did that come in? I know you said you talked about it when you were hearing the voices, but did you not find forgiveness until later on or were you able to find that, you know, right away with uh, for that individual? No, I found it pretty early on in the hospital. Yeah, yeah, pretty early on. Um, You know, like when it was spoken to me, like I I listened um, and I know it wasn't on accident. I know it wasn't just, you know, something like it was a connection. Like I've always had the idea of forgiveness of saying, all right, yeah, like, all right, I forgive you. Like, you're sorry. Okay, whatever. And then like, it is what it is. This time it was like an actual feeling and emotion of forgiveness like and i like the, the way i like to put it with like forgiveness like when you forgive someone two people are set free you know what i mean like myself and that person like you know and i have to see the role that i played in everything you know like i put myself in that situation i have to see that i'm not i was sick and that other individual was as well you know hurt people like to hurt people like if you're not healing from your traumas and stuff you're passing on to somebody else 
you know, unfortunately that's just kind of like human nature. Um, so like, I got to get past these things. I can't hold resentments. I can't, I can't do all these things because it's going to keep me from living in the present. You know, if I can't fully acknowledge my past and where I came from and all these things, then, you know, how am I going to live fully present in today? You know, and I try new, like, you know, I set short-term goals and long-term goals and try to accomplish these things because I love the feeling I get now. That's where I get my, you know, my rush from is, is like completing things that I didn't even think I could or other people didn't think I could, you know, and it's like, it's being able to do that. That has been, um, you know, just huge, just in, in, in my self-development. So Mike, you're the author of truth be told. Yes. Yeah. Truth be told. Point, at what point? Uh, were you like, I'm going to write a book and uh, people are going to benefit from my story. When, uh, when did that happen? So it took a while. So I, I, you know, once I finally, after that first year was really just getting myself back on my feet, uh, being a human again, uh, which is definitely not an easy task. I mean, I, I almost gave up so many times, man. Like I wanted to pick up, I wanted to die, you know, like, I, but it was like that one, that mustard seed, man. Like it was that small percent of faith I held on to that really just pushed me through. Um, and then I got back into work. Finally got back into like a marketing position um, with like a roofing contractor and like, and then I started seeing how the stress level started playing on my recovery now that I care about it. And I'm actually trying to like work on it with myself and stuff. Like, so I had to excuse myself from that uh, and then got into the field of treatment and uh, addiction and mental health. And, um, you know, that's when things really definitely started changing even more for me was being in the field and working right alongside with people first day coming in, you know, still kicking, still feeling like shit detoxing and like really just trying to offer words of encouragement and do groups and, you know, those kind of things. And, um, you know, it was, was huge for me. And, uh, it wasn't long after that, like, you know, I started sharing my story and stuff like that. And it had an impact on a lot of people, you know, like a lot of people, uh, you know, especially locally and everything when it started, um, you know, know the exact places I'm talking about and stuff. And like, you know, like just the odds of even getting out of that kind of place is slim to none. And, uh, you know, so I noticed that helping a lot of people and, uh, you know, so it was something that, that I, I just put in my mind. I'd love to be able to do it. But then in, also in my mind, it's a lot of self-doubt started coming in and fear. Like, can I do it? Um, you know, I don't even know anything about how to even get started doing it in the first place. Um, and then I just kind of built up this formula how to do it. Um, and just broke, you know, broke up chapters and sections and then went back in and filled everything in. And I really didn't try not to hold back at all, man. Like, uh, it was, it was, I'm not even gonna lie. It was a traumatic experience writing that damn book, man. Um, like I relived everything I wrote in that book when I wrote it, you know? So like, I purposely did that. I really wanted to put myself back in that situation with the same feelings and go through them again and put them down on that paper. Um, so I, cause I really wanted to picture, I really wanted to paint a picture with the words, you know, and, and, and have you have that feeling, not the, hopefully not the same feeling, but like un truly understand on a more emotional level of what it was for me uh, and, and, and how I found a way out. So, you know, I finally did it, finally got it done. Um, and then the editing process, you know, I did that on my own, might be a few mistakes here and there. Listen, it was first ever project, dude. I'm proud as shit of it. All right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it came out good, man. And then uh, published on Amazon. Um, I send out signed copies myself, um, you know, bring them to different events and stuff like that. Also, we have an ebook on my nonprofit's website, uh, you know, and that's that's like when things change, too, is like, you know, I met my fiance. I went through a divorce who I had a, a child with who's now five years old. 
States over during it. Um, and that's a whole nother situation, but now I'm uh, engaged to get married. Um, I have another child on the way, um, which is, uh, it's definitely a blessing. And, um, so me and, uh, my fiance who I've known since I was actually 14 years old, um, reconnected, um, someone in her family needed assistance getting the treatment within eight. She thought of me, reached out to me. Um, and mind you, we haven't spoken over a decade at this time. And, uh, within eight hours had him in treatment. Um, I believe he's over two years clean now, uh, since then. So it's been, you know, really awesome, man. And, uh, just never lost, uh, contact, stayed in touch and, you know, the rest was kind of all she wrote. So, together now have another baby on the way uh we'll soon be married um again uh to never divorce again <laughs> and uh but you know we, we were able to start a nonprofit too so you know kensington was you know holds a special place in my heart man as as messed up as that place is it holds a, a a very special place in my heart um i hate it and i love it you know what i mean it's it's i hate to love that place but i do um, you know, the people there, you know, not the ones doing the wrong, the wrong thing, obviously. Um, but, you know, so we decided to go and just, we put together, you know, grabbed some volunteers or friends as close friends in recovery and stuff like that. And went down, did an outreach, you know, we took donations of clothes and, and food and all these kind of things and went down and it was a hit. Like it was great. Um, you know, definitely filled my cup for sure. I was so grateful to be able to do it. We decided to do it again a month later. And then after that, I was like, I really, was 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 channeling like at that point too guys like you need to be doing this more like you this, this is what you need to be doing too and uh and I, like my impulsive self i start filing paperwork like that day you know like to get it to get my nonprofit established and two years later we're finally 501c3 approved um so you know anyone that donates is a tax write-off um you know so we are a charitable nonprofit organization go back to Kensington. Um, you know, we bring down hot meals. We brought barbers down there to do free haircuts, clothing, um, you know, bag lunches. Um, but, you know, we try to be a little different. So like, you know, we come down really with the ultimate goal of hopefully someone's going to want to go off the street. You know, someone's want to take a step in the right direction. Um, and we've been successful doing that, you know, and it's like, we don't go down. I don't go down with an unrealistic, you know, expectation of I'm going to grab somebody by the hand and take them to treatment and, and change their life. Like, you know, it doesn't work that way. But if I can sit down and empathize with someone and let them understand that I've been on the same exact stoop that you're sitting on, I've been in this park right here with a needle on my neck also, you know, like I get it. Uh, and there's a way out. Like you don't have to do this anymore. And, um, you know, usually within a day or two, I get a call and uh, sure enough, someone's trying to, you know, change their life, man. And, you know, we've been successful getting people on the street. So that's that's great. And, you know, since then, we've been able to partner up with other nonprofits and stuff like that. So, um, you know, things are just uh, are moving and going really good. So hopefully next year or so we have some events planned and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's 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 been great, man. It's been great. That's incredible, man. That's awesome. As far as the uh, like the motivational speaking, it kind of seems like it it kind of happened organically as you you know, started getting out there more, but, you know, to continue, continually do it. Is there someone that kind of, uh, you got inspiration from to, uh, you know, obviously people you help that's that, I mean, that's probably inspirational, but is there someone else or was it just more of a lack of, um, you know, people that were out there for, for you when you were younger? Yeah. So, you know, where it changed for me was, you know, during the process of, you know, recovery early on and stuff like that was a big part of it for me was like, I had to find motivation outside of myself. Like I couldn't get myself motivated. I couldn't always try to be, you know, on, I went, I had terrible fucking days. Like, and I still do, you know, we all do. Like, I don't stay motivated now. Um, but I remember like, 
when I had nothing to lose and now I have too much to lose, you know? So it's like, I have no other choice. Like plan A is my plan. That's it. You know? And like, and I can understand people from an earlier perspective where plan A doesn't work. There's 25 more letters in the alphabet. Like, you know, just try, try something else. But like, it's for me, it's like the opposite at this point. Like I have so much to lose at this point. Like I'm all in um, on my goals and my dreams and everything I do, man. Um, but there's definitely been influential people along the way, just people I found on YouTube, like William King Hollis, which is, was, was huge for me. You know, Eric Thomas, um, you know, uh, Billy Allsbrooks, which is one of my favorite, favorite speakers too. Um, you know, Marcus Taylor, great guys. And, and then to be able to now, and then be on YouTube now, and I, I have my own YouTube channel with speeches, public speeches on there now, kind of like motiversity kind of stuff. And, uh, and I've actually been able to stay in contact and FaceTime with actually William Hollis, who I actually used to rely on his videos to get me through a day um, and been able to actually put together a couple tracks with him uh, speaking. So, uh, I mean, that's like insane to me. You know, uh, I remember working inpatient and, uh, you know, running groups and stuff like that. And I would do like motivational Mondays and those kind of things. And I play these videos, never known within a few years you know, I'd be having conversations with these people uh, and actually speaking with them, uh, you know, and putting and putting, um, you know, messages out there uh, together. So, yeah, so that's just kind of it kind of came along organically, uh, you know, from what I felt like I needed to wait, I can do this, too. You know what I mean? It's like I finally like I, I had like I, I, I tell you, like I married my dreams, man. So like I had to break up with self-doubt and I had to cheat on fear, man. Like, that's it. You know what I mean? And like, those are the two things that knock on my, my door every single morning. And they're always asking me every morning, what's it going to take to break you today? Like, what's it going to take? You know what I mean? Like, that's always like the devil for me is, is always there trying to knock me off from, from what I'm intended to do. Um, you know, and it's just like, I feel like nothing can do it, man, because, you know, it, even, you know, some of the more painful biggest things have happened in my life since I've been in recovery, but I stayed clean and sober through it. Um, so it's like, that's no longer an option. Like I'm so grateful and thankful to God that, that the obsession is gone and lifted um, where that's not even an option for me to go to, you know, it's just, it's no longer on the table to, to, to pick up anything. You know, we, we kind of started this podcast. A lot of it was to kind of break the stigma of, you know, addiction and, and all that, but we feel like, uh, I feel like anyways, there's probably a greater stigma around homelessness and mm. some people not really, you know, truly understanding or even, you know, before probably starting this podcast and hearing some stories, you know, myself, not really even having a great understanding of, you know, the people that are really out there and, you know, do you have anything to say to, you know, to anyone to kind of like enlighten them a little bit on, you know, the people that are out there, uh, they're homeless and, and kind of, you know, breaking that stigma a bit. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, and, and I think it goes right along with anyone struggling too. just like you got to remember, like your current situation is not your permanent destination, right? Like it doesn't your current situation does not define you and it does not tell you where your future is going to be. It just doesn't, you know, like yet today you may not have a home, you might not have a relationship with your family, you might not have finances, you might not have whatever it may be, um, but it's obtainable. Right. But like as long as if we sit in these situations and decide not to take any action and expect it to fall in our lap, these changes, unfortunately, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, I think it's a matter of there are resources out there. Would I like there to be more resources? Absolutely. Like that's what I'm trying to do myself, you know, like as offer as many solutions as possible for any kind of situation. It may be uh, with anyone struggling in any aspect of their life. Um, but it comes down to 
you know, we've got to put the footwork in, man. Like if we don't like our situation, when are we going to change it? Like when is enough going to be enough to finally say like, I'm fucking sick and tired of this. Like, and if I continue to live this way, it's never going to change. Like, it's just understanding, like it's never going to change until I finally take a chance to make the choice to change. Right. It's like the three C's like that. That's what I have to do. Like the only reason I was able to change is because it started here of making that choice to take a chance on myself and actually believing in myself. And I think a lot of, we see that word change as a painful word because change is not a comfortable process. It's not, you got to jump through hoops. You got to do things you don't want to do and all these things. Um, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, those challenges are asking you like, how bad do you really want it? You know, you might, you might pray and say, God, please do this for me. Let me, you know, just, I, I need a house. All right. But how, how bad are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to spend your time, your energy, your effort, and put it all into getting that, like, because if not, are you truly worthy of it? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's kind of like the question is like, how bad do you truly want it should go directly correlate the path of, you know, the action that you take to, to accomplish it, you know, and, and making sure you do whatever you need to do uh, and utilize everything, everyone you possibly can to try to get in a better situation. Because there are people that care, man, that, you know, just like all of us, dude. And, uh, you know, when, when I, when I, you know, I try to help as, as much as I possibly can with the homelessness community. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's not always successful, you know. Um, but like I said, all we can do is kind of plant seeds. And, uh, you know, hopefully that the, they get that little bit of rain that gives them the push and a little bit of hope, uh, a little bit of light of hope. And, um, you know, they continue to blossom and, and change their situation, man, because it is possible. So, Mike, I don't have any questions left for you, man, but um, what would you say to someone listening that's still kind of struggling? I think, man, honestly, you know, struggle, struggles what made me, man. I'm not, you know, struggle defines who you are. Like, listen, things are going to happen in your life, you know, whether you like it or not. And it's a matter of how you get over it, how you get past it, what you do about it to move on. You know, it's a, it's a saying, you know, our life consists of really 10% of things that happen to us and 90% of how we react and respond to it. And it's so true. Like it's self-mastery. Like if you can control yourself and just say it is what it is of all this other shit that happens around you, you become a pretty powerful person. Um, you know, once I realized all these other people and all these other situations, I cannot control them. I can't control them as much as I'd like to like. So when these things happen, the only thing I can control is how I react to it and what I do about it. And the last thing I need to do is put myself back in a situation where I was before or take a couple steps back when all, if I just inch my way forward, you know, and not compare myself to other, how far they may be, just focus on my very next step and just keep fucking moving forward. Like, I'm going to be okay. You know what I mean? And, and the same goes for anyone out there struggling. There's so much, we look at pain as a prison when it's really a passport, man. Like we really do, you know, like that's how we learn. We don't learn. You can't learn as a human being if you don't make mistakes, period. Like that's any invention, anything everyone, anyone ever came up with, like you learn by trial and error. Same thing with life, man. Like you're going to make mistakes. Things are not going to go your way, but what are you going to do about it? You know, that's really what it comes down to. And that's what's truly going to build your character and who you ultimately become is how you respond to things that you don't want and don't want to happen in your life. Awesome, Mike. Thanks a million for joining us today, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, 
anyone that is interested, um, you know, want to take a look at the book is Truth Be Told, the story of an addict or an advocate. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. It is difficult to find on there because I didn't realize when I published it how many books are called Truth Be Told. And I'm like, holy shit, there's <laughs> dozens of pages. I'm like, what the hell? So people are always hitting me up. I can't find it. I can't find it. So just you can Google my name, Mike Gleam, G-L-I-E-M. And uh, just Google it and you'll have links there. And then all my socials are there. Official Recovery Mike on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. And recoveryarmyoutreach.com is my nonprofit website um, where you can get involved in helping us, helping the cause um, and continuously chip away at the stigma. Uh, we recover out loud. And um, the ebook is also available on there also. Awesome, Mike. We'll uh, include all that down in the description as well. Awesome, man. Appreciate Perfect, you. Buddy. So thank you so much for joining us, man. Yeah. Guys, Thank if you, you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out and ask for help. Thank you so much for listening.